The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Advent, and we're going to continue to talk about Advent for the next several weeks. Advent is marked by the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. And the word Advent, is a, it's really a Latin term. It comes from Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. And it refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Thus, people often speak of Christ's first Advent and His second Advent. That is, His first coming, His birth, which we celebrate at Christmas time, and His second coming, when He has yet to return, but will return, His return to reign on, and rule on earth. So Advent, therefore, is meant to be a time of anticipation and longing. And I don't know about you, but I know that my heart begins to get stirred up as I think about Christmas. And it's not so much about candy canes and cookies, although I do like those things, or presents under the tree. But really one of the things that really excites me as much as anything is the, is the Advent wreath, the lighting of the Advent candles. Because it's a, it's a sure symbol, it's a sign as you see the first candle lit, and then the second candle lit, and then the third candle lit, that Christmas is, is getting closer, that it's drawing closer and closer, that we get to look forward to anticipation when that middle candle, that Christ candle, that white candle, is lit on Christmas Eve. So with the passing of each Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve, I pray that that same excitement is stirred in your hearts as you look forward to celebrating the coming of the Savior, the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So Advent season is not just a time of looking back. It's instead a time of remembering that for thousands of years, God's people looked forward. They looked forward to the coming of a Savior, one who would save uh, God's people from their sin. You see, Advent is a time to remember that generation after generation through the Old Testament, they longed to see the fulfillment of God's promise. They knew God's promise that it, and they knew that it was real. They knew that God was going to send a Messiah. That one day, a king, a descendant of David, would reign and rule. But they longed to see that happen. And we, today, can see that some 2,000 years ago, that prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in a little town called Bethlehem. So Advent is a time for us to step back and remember that for generation after generation they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, but it's also a time for us to look forward as well. It's a time to look forward to the second coming of Jesus, knowing that one day He too will, He once again will return to earth and He will reign and rule in righteousness. So with that in mind, we're going to be working through, as I mentioned, these opening verses of the book of Luke, and we're going to be doing things a little bit different. If you're um, used to us, me reading the text and all of us standing while the text is being read, that's not going to happen the next few weeks because the text each week will be read by those who are lighting the Advent candle. So our text was read by the baddies this morning, and we're going to work through it in sections as we look at it this morning as we look at our message. So it's my prayer, as I mentioned, that God stirs in us the sense of awe and wonder as we see this gospel writer, the the uh, author being Luke, as we see him unfold the details of God's plan for the birth of the Messiah. And that our hearts would be stirred with longing as we think about Titus 2.13 and what Titus calls the blessed hope 
of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's get started by looking at the first of our Advent texts. Today we're going to be considering Luke 1, verses 5 through uh, 25, the text that Bill read earlier. And Luke begins his Gospel, start, we're going to start actually at verse 1, by, he begins his Gospel account by writing this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, that's a reference to the Gospel, servants of the Good News, it seemed fitting, it seemed proper for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And we don't know exactly who this Theophilus is. The Theophilus means lover of God, and we don't know if this is um, exactly who he was. Or even if he was an individual, could have potentially been a church. I think clearly this is Luke writing this to an individual named Theophilus, but he's writing this and we don't really know much about him. But we do know that Luke writes this and he says, I'm writing this so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So he gives us an understanding of why this book was written, especially these early verses. And Luke was concerned with providing an accurate an orderly account of the life, the ministry, and the message of Jesus. So he begins his account not with the start of Christ's public ministry, but by showing Theophilus that Jesus was the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise of a Messiah. The long-awaited promise in which the Old Testament saints had placed their hope. In other words, Jesus is the realization of what Titus 1 calls the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, Promised when? Long ages ago. So when the Scripture uses the term hope, it does not refer to wishful thinking. We use the term hope in a much different way. We talk about hope and I say, boy, I hope that there's cheesecake left in my refrigerator. I assure you there's not. I ate all of it. But Or I hope that one day I will get another motorcycle. Probably not going to happen. Or I, we, we hope for things We use it more to define wishful thinking. Whereas the Scriptures use it to speak to confident expectation. We hope for the coming of Jesus. Our hope lies in that. Not that we're wishful and that maybe someday He'll come back, but instead we are confident knowing that He will. That's why Romans 8, 24-25 says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. So He says, but you don't see it. It hasn't been realized yet. For who hopes for what he already sees? But, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly, we wait eagerly for it. So we wait eagerly, knowing that it will one day be realized. So I've titled the the sermon series, Rejoicing in Hope. Not because I want us to be optimistic, or merely optimistic, but because I want you to know, as Luke said, the exact truth. I want you to be confident in the Gospel and to eagerly await His return. So with that in mind, let's see how Luke lays this foundation of hope right from the beginning of his Gospel with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. The first point in our sermon outline as we look at the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, is the first point is hope 
for the weary. Number one, hope for the weary. Look at verses 5-7 through seven with me. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Luke lays out a pretty desperate situation here. He reminds his, uh, his uh, readers, and ultimately all of us as the eventual readers, he reminds us that these things took place in the days of Herod. And there's, this is none other than Herod the Great. The Herod the Great who rebuilt his temple in Jerusalem, or the temple in Jerusalem. The same Herod who was a great architect and, and poured time and money and effort into the rebuilding of Israel. But lest you think that his motivations were pure, this is also the same Herod that was so concerned with his own kingdom, over and above God's kingdom, that Matthew 2 tells us that he was threatened by the birth of Jesus and he had every male child under two years old in and around Bethlehem slaughtered. See, Herod was ruthless. Herod was a leader. He could lead, but he was ruthless. And it is in this time, Luke says, it is in the days of Herod that this took place. So these are dark days. But they're not just dark days because the nation of Israel was being ruled by the Roman government. Or that Rome had appointed Herod who was ruthless and, and really a descendant of Esau. He's an Idumean, so he's a descendant of Esau ruling over them. But even more significantly, because the days of Herod were marked by what is often called 400 years, the 400 years of silence. And this refers to the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The 400 years that existed between the prophet Malachi and the coming of Jesus. Look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 with me, if you will. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. We read a familiar passage, probably not so familiar because we've read it in Malachi so many times, but instead because we've read it in the New Testament. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So the Old Testament ends with this great promise. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, and Elijah's going to bring hope. And then there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of nothing. Until we read Luke 1, specifically verse 18, where we read that same thing, or 17 and 18. It is he who will go as a forerunner, this John the Baptist, will go as a forerunner before him, Jesus, and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see, Luke automatically draws on this connection back to Malachi. And he says, God has spoken. This great promise was offered up 400 years ago. And you've been waiting 400 years and God has spoken. 
So Luke reminds us that it was in the midst of weariness and despair that God sends the angel Gabriel to announce this message of hope. Not only were these weary days for the nation, but they're also weary days for Zacharias and Elizabeth. Notice how verse 7 describes their situation personally. It says they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. And you see this threefold explanation of them not being able to have kids. She had no child. They had no child. She was barren. They were old. He really lays out a pretty hopeless situation. He could have just said, they had no kids. But he says, they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. And they were advanced in years. They were old. This was not humanly possible for them to have kids. And I just want to to pause here. I know that there are people who have sought to have children and have not been able to. I know that there are people who have tried for years to have children and have not been able to. And it's very easy to just pass over this, to just, for, especially for, for those of us who have kids, to just pass over and say, oh, they weren't able to have kids, without really seeing the despair, the gravity of the situation. Especially in this culture, in the, the culture of the Old Testament of, of Israel, but even so, even today. Luke paints a picture that by human standards seems to be without hope without confident expectation. After 400 years of silence, many were undoubtedly no longer confident that God was going to speak. They, were, they had forgotten God's promise, or they would remembered God's promise, but they thought, it's just not going to happen. I remember, I remember praying for my father before my father became a follower of Jesus. And I, literally, I remember praying and praying and praying as a new believer. And days turned into months and months turned into years. And then finally I said, not going to happen. I just gave up. I just said, it's not going to happen. There's no point in praying. There's not, and I still prayed, but they, my prayers just became less fervent. As time went on, I grew weary. And praise God, God's faithful. And my father came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his Savior, and he served him until the end of his life. But I grew weary in the midst of the silence. And you can't help but think that the nation of Israel was growing weary in 400 years of silence, not having heard from God. The same thing with Zacharias and Elizabeth. Having no children, being barren, advanced in years, it would be easy for them to lose hope as well. To think, well, it's pretty obvious that we're not going to have a child. And yet, it's in the midst of that situation that Luke says, in the days of Herod, there's hope. He says, in the days of Herod, it's what Galatians 4.4 refers to as the fullness of time. I love that expression. The fullness of time. At just the right moment, God breaks the silence and He reminds Israel and the world of the hope that can be found in the coming Messiah. So it should not be lost on us. And and we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't understand this. It should not be lost on us that Zacharias means Yahweh has remembered. That they're in the middle of this, this desperate situation that the people are weary. And Zacharias, the the one to whom John is born, 
Zacharias means Yahweh has remembered. And Elizabeth means my God is an oath. It was in the midst of this dark and desperate and weary situation that God reminds His people that there is hope. So having seen, number one, that there's hope for the weary, next I want you to see, number two, that there's hope for the faithful. Hope for the faithful. Look at verses 5-9 through with me. second half of verse 5, he says this, Luke writes, There was a priest named Zacharias. So he's a priest. And he's of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So she's a daughter of a priest as well. From the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly, verse 6, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And then look at verse 7. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of, his priestly, of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Notice that while God had not yet granted Zechariah's request for a child, he was still faithfully serving his God. He didn't abandon his role as a priest. He didn't say, God hasn't been faithful to me. God hasn't answered my prayer. Therefore, I will do things my way. Instead, the text says that both he and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And I hope that you read that and you say, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you said a couple of weeks ago, I thought the Scripture said that there is none righteous. No, not one. And Scripture says that. It says there's none righteous, no, not one, that all of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. And yet it says that Zacharias and Elizabeth are righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. See, Luke's point is not that they were righteous because they were following God's commands. His point is that they were following God's commands because they were righteous. Do you see the difference? They were not justified because they kept the law. I love the way the New Living Translation explains this concept in Romans 9.31. In Romans 9.31, the New Living Translation says this. It says, The people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. They tried to keep the law, but they never succeeded. And in the same way, Zacharias and Elizabeth didn't get right with God by doing right. They were made right with God the same way that Abraham and everyone else has been by faith. That's why Galatians 3 says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, they were sons. They were, Zacharias was a son of Abraham. Elizabeth was a daughter of Abraham. Not because they kept the law, but because they had faith in God. So Luke's point is not that Zacharias and Elizabeth lived a life of sinless perfection. Instead, his point is that like Abraham, they trusted God. They had faith. And as a result, their lives were characterized by obedience. In other words, the result of their faith was faithfulness. There's no doubt that these two words are connected in that way. 
that you cannot be faithful without faith. And if you have faith, you will be faithful. You see, there's actually, within churches, within what I would call otherwise Bible-believing churches, there's this idea that you can receive Jesus Christ and not walk in obedience. That somehow you say an aisle, you, you, say, an aisle, you say a prayer, you walk an aisle, you receive Jesus, and then from that point forward, it doesn't matter what you do, that you must be a believer because you said a prayer, or because you walked an aisle, because you raised a hand, because you became a member of a church, or served as a deacon, or a pastor, or whatever. And that's not what Scripture teaches. God is faithful to finish that which He starts. He will carry through to completion that which He begins. Not only does He call you to Jesus, but He makes you more like Jesus. That a life of faith exhibits faithfulness. That where there is the Spirit, there is fruit of the Spirit. And I'm not saying that looks the same in all of us, or that we don't all have places where we all need to grow, because we do. But what I'm saying is that their lives were characterized by obedience because they were people of faith. They were not people of faith because their lives were characterized by obedience. So please understand that when you abide in the vine, you bear fruit. That's what Scripture teaches. So having seen that Luke proclaims, number one, hope for the weary and hope for the faithful, those who have faith, those who live in faith, now let's consider the third point in our outline. The third point is hope for the prayerful. Look at verses 10 through 13. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense, uh, outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, this is Zacharias, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Yeah, no kidding. He walks inside, he's given the once in a lifetime opportunity to offer up the incense, and here's an angel, the angel of the Lord standing beside him, appears to him. And just like every other instance in Scripture, fear grips him. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name of John. Have you ever thought about what Zacharias was praying for? Or have you always assumed, like me, that he was simply praying for a child. You ever thought about what Zacharias was actually praying for? He's the priest. He's given, or he's a priest. He's given the once in a lifetime opportunity to offer up this incense. He goes into the, the holy place and he's standing there, not the holy of holies, but he's standing in the holy place ready to offer up this incense and he's praying. And you think that he's praying merely for a son. You think he's praying merely, Lord, you know, I really need a son. What do you think the people outside were praying for? It seems that Zacharias throughout his life certainly would have prayed for a son. But is that the petition that was answered in verse 13 when the angel Gabriel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. We don't know. We don't know exactly what he prayed, right? But... We know that maybe he prayed for a son. Maybe he stopped. Remember, she's barren. They had no child. They're old. Maybe he gave up praying. I don't think so. 
But I also don't think that he's praying merely for a child. I think we can be sure that that's not all he was praying for. He, like those outside, would have been praying for deliverance of God's people. They would have been praying for God's deliverance. Zacharias, a faithful priest, knew his responsibilities as an intercessor on behalf of those people. So when the angel tells Zacharias that he will have a son whose name is to be John, which by the way means God is gracious. God is gracious. And he tells them that the son would be a forerunner to the Messiah, would go ahead of the Messiah, would be the fulfillment of the promise in Malachi, the coming Elijah. It becomes apparent that John was not just a gracious gift to Zacharias and Elizabeth, but a gracious gift to all of God's people. So I think when he says, your petition has been granted, what's really being said is, your petition for the people, for deliverance, has been granted. That the Messiah is coming. And you're going to have a son. And your son, it's going to be beyond your wildest of dreams of just having a son. You're going to have a son, and his name is going to be God is Gracious. Because he's going to go before this Messiah. He's the one promised 400 years ago in Malachi. See, the birth of John is evidence that God has answered the people's prayer for deliverance and is preparing a way for the Messiah. So having seen in Luke, number one, hope for the weary. Number two, hope for the faithful, those who have faith, those who are of the faith. And number three, hope for the prayerful, Now let's consider the fourth and final point in our sermon outline. Number four, hope for the humble. Hope for the humble. Verses 14 through 25 says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is the angel speaking still. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in the proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So the angel does not say, he doesn't say, Zacharias, you're going to have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at your son's birth because he will be great in the sight of men. He doesn't say, and he is going to be a mighty and awesome leader, Zacharias. He's going to have people follow after him. He's going to accumulate so many followers, people are going to be chasing after him. Instead, he says, his name's going to be John. God is gracious. 
right from the get-go. His name is going to indicate the one who is gracious. It's going to point to one who is greater than him. And he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Not so much in the sight of men. And he'll drink no wine or liquor. He's going to be set apart. This is the guy who's out in the wilderness crying, make way, get ready for the coming of the Lord. He's set apart for God. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. His strength will come from God. And he'll go as a forerunner before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare people for one greater than himself. He's going to make people ready for the Lord. How? He will have the ministry of repentance and reconciliation. The scripture says to turn hearts of the fathers back to the children. That there's this idea of reconciliation and repentance. What's worse than a father who has abandoned the heart of his child? He's given up on his child. This is the kind of ministry that John would have. To take a father's heart and be used of God to turn a father who turned away from his children back to them. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel, not toward him, he says, but to the Lord their God. You see, not only did John humbly point others to Jesus, but his message demanded that others receive Jesus in humility and repentance as well. So in verses 18 and 19, Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Right? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. His response doesn't seem that much different than Mary's response when she says, how am I going to know this for I'm a virgin? But the angel's reply indicates that his response is much different. Right? The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, right? who stands in the presence of God. Don't miss that phrase. Zechariah is as close to the Holy of Holies as he will ever be in this Old Testament period. He is closer to God than any other man on the face of the earth at this moment. Behind the veil is God Himself. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And He sent me to tell you good news. Right? He doesn't say, I'm Gabriel. Like, Do you know who I am? I'm awesome. He says, God sent me to tell you this good news. That's humbling. Zechariah is physically, locationally closer to God than anyone else on the planet Earth. And the angel says, God sent me, who stands before him all the time, to tell you this good news. You better believe it. And he makes him, he humbles him. God humbles him and he makes him silent and unable to speak until John the Baptist is born. He gives him a lot of time to think about his response to God. When his, priestly, when his days of priestly service were ended, he went back home. He was humbled. You see, he was humbled in understanding that God's plan, or God's plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. And his question was legitimate enough. How will this be? The problem was that it was surrounded by doubt. It was not, how will this happen? But how can this be? That's not possible. 
Instead, we should humbly come before God and not say that's not possible, but like Mary, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, I don't understand how that's possible, but I am your servant and I believe. Then verse 24, After these days Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Elizabeth humbly and correctly sees herself not as deserving God's grace or God's favor, but instead as a, as a recipient of His grace. So by way of review, Luke begins his Gospel with the message of hope. A message of confident expectation. Hope for the weary. Hope for those who see their desperate need. Right? Hope for the faithful. That is, hope for those who have been made righteous by faith. Hope for the prayerful. Hope for those who seek the Lord. And hope for the humble. Hope for those who humbly submit to His plan and His will for their lives. So the question becomes this. The big question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, personally, first, I want you to see your desperate need. I want you to see the need that you have for a Savior. That just like the nation of Israel who needed the coming Messiah, who needed desperately to understand and know God's promise, to claim God's promise, so do we. That just like Zacharias and Elizabeth who long for a son, so we should also long for the rescue that is offered through Jesus. We need to see our desperate need, but we do not need to grow Weary. So don't grow weary. Instead of growing weary, remember there's hope. Instead of growing weary, be faithful. Be faithful. Rest in the confident expectation of knowing that we are made righteous. Not by our goodness, but by His goodness. That's confident expectation. My hope is not that I will be good enough, but that He is good enough. And be prayerful. Rest in the confident expectation knowing that He answers those who seek Him. That if we seek Him in prayer, He hears us and He answers us. And then be humble. Rest in the confident expectation knowing that it's only by His grace, His unmerited favor, that we can stand before Him. And as a church, as a church, I pray the same things are true. That instead of growing weary which is so often the case within churches, we grow weary. Instead, we say we must be faithful. We must live in confident expectation, knowing that He's made us righteous and He's going to carry us through to completion. We must be prayerful. Seek the lost. Pray for the lost. Know that He answers our prayers. Know that He will build His kingdom and be humble, knowing that it is only by grace that we will do His work, that we will carry forward the ministry that He's called us to do. So my challenge to you is instead of growing weary, be faithful, be prayerful, and be humble. And be confident of His coming. As we look back to the Old Testament, we celebrate Advent, I pray that you look back and remember that for thousands and thousands of years, the people waited for the coming of the Messiah. And today, we know, we know that He was born, that He lived, that He died on the cross. 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And He was raised on the third day. But we also, so we look back, but we also look forward to His coming again to reign and rule in righteousness. So Advent is a time of looking back to look forward, but it's also a time of looking forward to His second coming. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Pauley, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.